One of life's greatest questions is what happens to us after we die. Is death the end or a new beginning? Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. In this show, we listen to firsthand accounts of people who have been clinically dead and return to talk about it. We have with us today Josette Richardson Hulley, and she has an amazing story that was actually her husband's who passed away a few years ago and um, usually we have people on here Josette that are telling their own story but your husband's is so fascinating and and you um, helped author his book and so we'd love to go ahead and hear this from you so anyway good morning and welcome to the show thank you so much Eric we're happy to be here and if you want you're welcome to give a shameless plug for the book right now (laughs) Well, I do have um, some pretty good brags. (laughs) I feel that my husband, I've, you know, because he wrote a a book about a near-death experience, I've been interested in all kinds of near-death experiences, and I've I've read quite a few uh, stories from from different people's experiences. But the thing that I, I like to brag about is that I feel like his experience was probably the longest near-death experience um, on record. He was in a coma for seven weeks before his eventual death. Uh, He died five years after his coma. And um, some people, I mean, I don't know if it's for sure the longest one that, you know, it's the longest one I've heard of, but um, a lot of people who have near-death experiences don't really remember too much. And at the first, when Lance came out of the coma, he was so excited to tell us, you know, I've been there, been there. He actually had a trachea and could only mouth the words at first. Um, but anyway, his, his book has really sold well. We've sold, we're all coming up on a half million copies have, you know, been sold. Um, it's, it's an intriguing, interesting. Yeah. I, I always tell people, um, I don't know, maybe I sound judgmental, but I feel like some near death experiences and I, uh, I don't know. I think sometimes people, dramatize them in a way that maybe makes them not as believable or maybe a little too dramatic. And you wonder how much of it was, um, you know, just decorated a little bit, you know, to be, mm-hmm. to be sellable. And I always tell people that my husband um, was just a normal down to earth guy. And his story is just very down to earth. I, I think it's the most down to earth near death experience that, you know, I've ever heard of. He wrote it in a way that was believable and just, you know, plain and simply his, his, he wasn't, you know, a trained author. He just wrote a story. I would agree with everything that you're saying. I usually, and, um, and thank you for sending me the book, by the way, I got it last week. And usually I try not to read too much about somebody's experience before I interview them. Cause I like to be surprised and hear it from with fresh ears, but I picked this up and I and I went forward to the chapters where he's talking about his experience and a little bit less of the background, and, and I couldn't put it down. And I accidentally read through at least all of that part. I uh, didn't get through the whole book quite yet, but um, but but it was too fascinating to stop. And it was an un, kind of an unusual experience because it, it was over over this time when he was in a coma, he had three visits. Right, right out outside right. of his body, and anyway, if you want to just start for the listeners, start kind of from the beginning. You don't sure. have to go into a lot of detail about his health, but what what led up to where he was at, 
and um, and jump into what he experienced. Okay, um, he had a real bad case of Crohn's disease, and um, the doctors at the time, this was a few years ago, didn't treat his disease, you know, in a way that they might today. Uh, they used high doses of prednisone for many years. He was, but prednisone has a lot of bad side effects, and um, if you're on it for you know an extended period of time, and so it makes one of the one of the there's many side effects, but one of them is it makes uh, your teeth and your bones very brittle and uh, weak and so and porous. And so he uh, would literally just knock into something with his arm and end up with a broken arm. You know what I mean? It was just sad. And by the time he was 35, he died at age 42. But by the time he was 35, he had a full set of dentures because all his teeth had fallen out from the years of the prednisone. And people ask me, you know, did he die of, of Crohn's disease? And I'm like, you know, he died from the side effects of the medications because um, Crohn's doesn't usually kill you, although it's very painful. Uh, but anyway, um, so what happened is he, uh, Christmas morning, went out, we bought our kids a used motorbike. We didn't have a lot of money and we, we have six sons and one daughter and the boys were so excited to have this motorcycle. So Lance went out there to get it started up and he took a little, just a little ride around the cul-de-sac uh, in Idaho Falls where we lived. There's ice on the road. He slipped as he was turning a corner, stuck his leg out to, you know, to prop him up and stop him from falling, but he you know, touched on some ice. And he just kept sliding into the splits basically as the bike went down and it broke his hip. Uh, and again, the reason he broke the hip was because the, the prednisone that he'd been on for so many years. So that wouldn't be a big, big issue, but he went to the hospital, had surgery done. They, they put pins in and fixed his hip. Um, but oftentimes he went like when old people die, have you, have you ever noticed when an old person gets old, they, they break their hip and then they end up just going downhill really fast because, yes. of the, yeah, because of the medicines he'd been on for so many years, he was kind of in an old body with the porous bones. And so as, as after they did the surgery, all the fatty emboli that, that are in the hip bone and the joint and the socket of the, the hip bone um, got into the bloodstream and ended up collecting in his lungs. So within just a few days after the accident, before they could even send him home from the hospital after the hip surgery, um, his, his, he could, was getting so he couldn't breathe. His lungs were filling with more and more, uh, you know, of that fatty emboli that was basically gone rampant in his bloodstream. And then he got all kinds of infections and ended up that his lungs on the x-rays were pretty much black, so bad that they feared for his life. He couldn't breathe. They rushed him to ICU. Um, he, he basically couldn't get enough air. And so he was in ICU and they, when they saw the x-rays and how bad his lungs were, they decided they needed to um, put him in a, just to let his body relax. They put him in a drug-induced coma. So he wasn't really in a, you know, a coma on his own. It was drug-induced because his body needed to relax to be able to heal. He needed every little extra bit of strength to be able to heal. You know, they watched x-rays on his lungs and it just, it was a long time before we finally felt like he was going to be able to be, you know, well enough to be able to take him up out of the coma. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all started. At what point was he sick enough or, or did he actually, um, die in some way that he left his body? Well, he was unconscious and I think being okay. unconscious, according to what I've understood from my husband's experience. And again, I'm certainly not any kind of a medical expertise. I have no medical expertise, but, um, 
being unconscious um, was enough for him to leave his body. And um, I guess there was a lot of pain associated with what he was going, what his body was going through. So they had him, you know, on the, the IVs that kept him in, in the state of coma, the IVs, the anesthesia, and also a lot of pain medicine. And, um, but still, when he was unconscious, that's when he was able to leave his body and have those beautiful experiences. It's interesting to me too, that when he woke up from the coma, I mean, I mentioned that he couldn't speak right away because he had a trach in, mm -hmm. but you know, after a week or two, he got the trach out. We slowly, you know, were able to hear him tell his story. He was so excited to have been there. So excited. Couldn't wait to tell us. He had again, three times that he could remember. He would just have something happen, a little occurrence in just daily life. And he'd go, Oh my goodness. That just reminded me of a whole new thing, you know? And sometimes I don't, sometimes I've, I felt I've talked to a lot of people and sometimes they don't remember anything. Um, but I do believe that, in fact, they told him when he went to the other side at the end that he did need to write a book about it and that it would be helpful to a lot of people in understanding, you know, just life after death in general. And so God blessed him to be able to have things come to his memory as time went on. So he was able to write the book. But I, like I said, I feel bad. There's a lot of people we've talked to that said, man, I, I just remember going there. I don't remember anything else, you know? So he was blessed to, over the period of two or three years, remember and remember and remember more and more things. So what are some of the things that he saw and heard and did? It was really fun. Again, we have uh, seven children. And it, the reason I say it was fun is because he was, he enjoyed talking to our sons. We have six sons and one daughter. And our daughter was just a little, I think she was like three or four, probably three. So, so anyway, he mostly was talking to our boys and he would tell them all the first impression things, the astounding things, like the most beautiful place in the world and going towards the light. Like everybody says, same, same situation. And he talked about how in the next life, their animals are there. All, all, all the animals on in the earth are still, you know, alive in the next life after death. Not only do people continue on, but the animals do as well. And there was a moment when he saw a great big lion walking around right next to a deer and her and her little uh, baby deer. So I guess maybe we're all vegetarian in the next life, uh, but nobody was worried about you know this this lion hurting or eating the deer. And he was able to, the, the lion came up and, and he was able to pet the lion and there was no fear, um, which was kind of neat. That was completely different from our realm. There were hundreds and thousands of different colors in the flowers and each tree or our plant had many different colors of flowers on it. It wasn't, you know, usually when we have a, a bush or a tree, there's just one type of blossom on it, but they were all different colors that were beyond imagination. He just had, it wasn't even explainable, but probably the most powerfully impactful, important difference was uh, the feeling there. There was nothing but love. And that was the biggest difference. And that affected our family more than anything in those next five years. He, he was made known to him that, you know, we know there are forces of, of evil in our world, you know, whether you believe in, a, you know, a Satan or a uh, just, you know, just mental illness or I don't know, whatever causes evil in our world today. And it can be a thousand different descriptions of that, depending on where we come from in our own frame of reference and our own beliefs and worldview. But none of that is present in the next world. 
after we die, there is none of that. And I think that is the number one commonality between all people who talk about near-death experiences and have that experience is they feel God's love for them. No matter what they consider is God, they feel this pervasive, all-encompassing love that is so powerful. One way it is expressed uh, over there um, was he said that, I just think this is really profound because I'm studying to be uh, a marriage and family therapist and I'm about halfway through my master's program right now. And we spent hours and, you know, so much time and so much study trying to learn to understand other people from all different, you know, walks of life and all different viewpoints. And I mean, there's, if you have seven people in a family, you've got seven different, you know, stories they'll each tell about the very same experiences, you know? And, but when one thing he noticed was there was none, no feeling of evil, none at all. And, and uh, the cool thing was when you would introduce, be introduced to someone over there, everyone gave a hug. And he said, the hug was, as as someone hugged you, all of a sudden, you understood everything about them. All they were and all their past experiences were suddenly just a part of you. As you hugged them, you understood them completely, 150%. Isn't that cool? I that is that was so cool. amazing. And, and I can't yeah. imagine what the communication is like. If you can understand them without even yeah. talking... I yeah. mean, we have such a problem with communication here and we're misunderstood. And, and I think with yeah. that kind of thing going on that our, the communication must be perfect as well. Right. Yeah. They said you didn't even need, and, and, and he also mentioned that he had his um, deceased relatives, a cousin, Randy, who acted mostly as his guide who had died. He was about Lance's age in life, but he had died 20 years. He had died when he was like 19. And so he was he was Lance's uh, guide, but also his grandfather was there. People who he knew and loved from you know who had passed on. The the family was an important element in the next life. We we stay and and remain in in family units, and I thought that was really neat. Um, and because those are the people who love us the most. One of the most important things he learned was that he learned how angelic ministers or our deceased relatives take care of us and help us and inspire us. For example, you know, oftentimes we've thought, well, they say that God loves us and he cares about us. How does he keep track of millions and millions and billions of people mm -hmm. all at once, you know? But that was a part of the plan that he learned. And I do believe that God um, is infinite in his power and does have the power to somehow understand us all, all at once and know of our needs every mo moment. But, you know, I, I accept that some people don't believe that, but one way that God handles taking care of all of us in our moments of need is um, by sending our deceased relatives to just whisper things in our ears, you know, here and there. I mean, you, I don't care what religion you are. There's, I've seen lots of uh, just social media threads and podcasts about just whatever you want to call it, angelic ministrations, um, where someone says, you know, I had a feeling I should take a different bus or I shouldn't go that day. Or they find out that the bus they normally took every day ended up, you know, in a great big accident. And, and again, people, people talk about this from all different religions and uh, all different belief systems. Um, there are those who have died that love us, that are sent by God to work miracles in our lives and help us when we need it. For me, I found since my husband's death, when I pray and ask God 
for for help in a really difficult problem. I had that a lot when I was raising my children because Lance died when we had a lot of young children still. And sometimes you just have to ask and God will send, you know, whether you recognize that there's an angel there or not, just ideas to your mind. And I believe that's when, you know, we do have angelic ministration helping us. One of the favorite stories I've heard from Lance's book that people have shared that they liked the most was a description of how that happened that Lance got to see while he was in his coma. He was with his grandfather at the time in the, what we call the spirit world or the next life, whatever you want to call it. They were talking and he was teaching him about what it's like there. And then all of a sudden his grandpa just turned to him and said, Hey, uh, you need to have some extra help with your health right now. Your body down there in the earth is in a coma that if we don't do some direct intervention, some divine intervention, you're going to die. So we're going to have your dad. Um, one of the things that is um, unique to, to our religion is, you know, we give, we give what we call a blessing, but for other religions, it could just be the same power comes through a special prayer when you know someone is really in a bad way. So basically because, and I believe it's because we are of that faith that we, we believe and use blessings. And again, other people can access the power of God through prayer or whatever they believe accesses the power of God. I know God loves all his children and he wants to help us all. But his grandfather turned to him while he was in the spirit world and said, your body's in his place where it's not going to live through the weekend. Uh, we need to go give you, you need a blessing and we're going to have your dad do it. But your dad doesn't know that he needs to give you a blessing. So he said, um, sometimes since he was new to that realm, you know, you just have, you just have a thought of where you need to be and you're there. So his grandpa kind of helped him and, and they, I think he might've even held his hand and had the thought that, that suddenly they were at an airport. They had been in the spirit world. His grandpa held his hand. And he said, we're going to help your, your dad remember that he needs to give you this blessing because you're going to die without this extra special angelic help. So they were suddenly at an airport. He stood there and just looked around. Now he knows that it was the Idaho Falls airport where we near where we lived, excuse me, the Boise airport. Cause that's where his dad was. His dad was across the state in Boise at the time. And his grandfather, who was again, both of them were a spirit. They were standing there in the airport. Lance knew that nobody could see them, but he could see everyone walking through the airport. Mm -hmm. His grandfather walked up to a computer screen. Um, you know, like the little screens where you get your tickets um, at an air yeah. airport, he walked up to this, the computer screen, touched the screen. And then came back and said, okay, now we need to go to this, to where your dad is. And again, he held his hand and instantly they were in this. My father-in-law uh, was a state Senator and he was sitting in the state Senate, you know, in Boise, um, just listening to the proceedings and they were deciding, you know, what kind of laws they should pass. And he was sitting there lead, and he said he stood there near his father, but he knew his father could see either one of them. He and his grandpa stood there watching his father in action. It was really neat because he said he sat there, watched his father, knew no one could see him, see either one of them. He suddenly turned and looked at his grandpa and saw the pride in his eyes as he watched his son working as a state senator. He was just filled with pride and it was just so tender. And then all of a sudden, his grandfather, Lance, was just standing there, didn't know exactly what they were going to do. His grandfather 
walked up near his son, who was Lance's father, sitting there on the Senate floor. And uh, he leaped over and whispered in his ear. It looked like to him, the spirit whispered in the ear of the physical mortal father. They both looked to Lance like just real people. The spirit wasn't like white and ghost-like. He looked like a real grandpa that had a body, but he knew that they they weren't. <laughs> he didn't have a body because of the way they were able to transport themselves like that. At least at that point, I believe eventually we'll be resurrected and have our bodies back. But he looked like a regular guy. He walked up, but no one could see him. He walked up to his son, leaned over, and in his ear said, Lance needs a blessing today, and you need to give it to him, but you've got to catch an airplane. It leaves in 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, my father-in-law just jumped up with a start, had, of course, not recognized, not seen his father speaking in his ear, jumped up with a start, looked at his watch, and went, oh, my goodness, I forgot I scheduled my flight earlier this weekend. I've, I've got a plane to catch in 20 minutes. And then Lance and his grandpa watched as he hurriedly packed his stuff up, walked outside the Senate building, walked across the parking lot, got in his car, drove to the airport. The Boise airport took, you know, parked in long-term parking, took a shuttle <laughs> and got on the plane. Now, Lance and all of us know that you can't do that in 20 minutes, but somehow he made his flight in, again, there's no way he could have made it in 20 minutes, but he did. It was probably just that voice from his father telling him, you got to catch a plane. Somehow he, he believed he should try, and he did. Caught the plane. When he got to Idaho Falls, he caught a ride with another senator that was just, uh, that lived in Idaho Falls, that, that drove him, you know, straight to the hospital where my mother-in-law was outside uh, Lance's ICU room talking to a doctor. The doctor had just told her that they didn't think he'd make it through the weekend. They were saying, you know, there's this one crazy treatment we can try where we would life flight him to the University of Utah from Idaho Falls. And it was a new procedure that they thought basically they would flush his lungs with some kind of sterile water and hopefully drain it in time to be able to get him so that some of the fatty emboli would come out. But it's, it was a new procedure at the time that they hadn't experimented with much. It was very risky. And frankly, they didn't think he'd even make the flight. They didn't think he'd live through uh, the flight to be changed. So she was crying, talking to the doctor right then. Her husband, who was coming home earlier than usual, walked up to her and, and said, you know, conversed with her and the doctor and found out the news that things were looking so terrible and that they thought he would die. My mother-in-law looked at her husband there with the doctor standing there after he told them what was going on and the, the bleak outlook. And she said, you've got to give Lance a blessing. And he said, I know. So he went home and didn't give him the blessing right then because he was so desperate to know what God would have him say in that special prayer. And he got down on his knees. It was super, super just begged God to tell him what he should say as he went back in an hour to, to administer that blessing to his son. And he just begged him and begged him, you know, it's one of those death, deathbed um, desperate cries to God for help. And he said, as he was praying, he was told specific things that he needed to bless Lance with strength in all the different organs that were being most affected. He drove back to the hospital, asked his other son, Mark, and his other son, Todd, to come help administer that blessing. It's a beautiful experience. In our, in our faith, you know, you just lay your hands on their head and administer a prayer, say a prayer. 
uh, and we believe that brings uh, God's power. And he blessed organs that he didn't even know that he was told he should he should bless that he didn't even know were affected and afterward found um, that they were integral and important in Lance's healing. That blessing was a big turning point. And from there on, I think it was a period of about a month that he had started a real big, steady increase of, uh, of healing. It seemed like it was like two or three weeks from the time of that blessing that they actually were able to bring him out from anesthesia. Um, and then again, he had two, before they brought him out of the anesthesia and the drug-induced coma, he was able to have two more, uh, what seemed to me like long-term trips into the next life. And one thing he was really concerned about as he learned about everything over there was, would he be able to come back? And eventually towards the end of his, I think it was on his third experience, they said, yeah, you'll be able to come back. Um, so again, two or three weeks later, they, they did bring him up out of the coma he was in excruciating pain. He did not want to come back from the spirit world. He did not want to come back from the next life, which I've heard most people say that they feel that way with the near-death experience. Uh, any other questions you have for me? Yeah, first of all, that's that's a really neat, amazing story about the father whispering to the grandfather and Lance being able to witness all that. And, and it's also super interesting to hear that we have ancestors that are helping us right now right in in yeah. some kind of angelic form that we don't yeah. completely understand and it yeah. makes so much sense because i know if i were gone i'd give anything to be able to help my children my grandchildren etc cetera, etc cetera. yes it just makes sense that people that love them and have that tie would be the ones to do that yeah, it does make sense. I know when I die, the number one thing I'm going to want to do is be helping my kids. That's the number one thing yeah. I, I want to do forever. Um, one thing that was kind of interesting is Lance didn't remember that story immediately when he first came out of the coma. It was about, I'm going to say, three weeks later after he'd been brought out of the coma and was, you know, conscious. His parents were visiting me in the hospital, and this was before he came home. And his dad was, his mom said, did you know that's while you were you know, unconscious, your dad gave you a blessing. And that was right before they told us that they thought you wouldn't make it through the weekend. Your dad gave you a blessing. And from then on, it was a real turning point in your healing. And as soon as she said that, all of a sudden it clicked in his brain because his dad said, yeah, I was in Boise. And he started to tell the story thinking that Lance had no clue about what had happened while he was unconscious. As soon as he mentioned the trigger word Boise, because they had gone to the Boise airport and talked to the, at my father-in-law at the Boise State Senate, you know, Capitol building. All the whole memory flooded back into Lance's mind. And he cut my father-in-law off and my mother-in-law who were telling him the story said, no, 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 no. I saw the whole thing. I saw that, you know, it was with your grandpa. I was with your dad, dad, you know, I was with your dad, my grandpa. And he came and whispered to you, you've got to catch a plane in 20 minutes. You jumped up with the start. And then I, we got to watch you as you went you know, to get your car and, and, you know, we watched every turn you take, you took as you drove to that uh, airport. And it was beautiful because it was a kind of a, a real tender mercy from God that that was validation that Lance's experience was true because he was able to tell his dad every, every turn he took in that drive to rush to the airport. And his dad said, you're right. You're right. I did that, you know? And uh, 
So I don't know, that was kind of a neat thing. Another thing that was a validation for us was during his near-death experiences, one of the time towards the end, it must've been in the second or third time he, he went over there. He was really worried about me and my kids. Um, I mean, you know, you've got little kids who are going to school sure. every day while their dad's in a coma, not knowing if their dad's dead or alive for quite an extended period of time. And so Lance wanted to go check on his kids. And he asked his guide, Randy, if he could. And he said, okay. So they went, the first, the first child he got to check on was our son, Creed, who at the time I think was in about fourth grade. He went and stood there in the back of the classroom and, and knew that no one could see and watched as the kids, the teacher asked a question and Creed shot his head up in the air and answered the question. And, you know, he just got to see exactly what, he did and what was said. And, and he did that with all of our children. He got to go see all of them and he got to come see me. And after his coma, he was able to relate to them. I saw you on this day when you did this and this was the circumstance and, and they could remember it. It was significant times in their classrooms or wherever they were that they said, yep, I remember that. For me, um, I was driving in our in our car, all my kids were at school. I was driving to the hospital to see Lance while he was in his coma and spent a few hours with him. They told us that the more we could talk to him, touch him, rub his hands, he was you know, basically medically frozen. They didn't want him to even be able to twitch or turn or roll over. They wanted all his strength to go to fight for his life. So he was actually medically unable to move. And so they told us the more we could talk to him, the more we could touch him, that would increase his chances of coming back. So we tried to have people with him around the clock. I mean, we were just desperate. And, and so we'd go talk to him and rub his, rub his feet or rub his hands or rub his arms and, and just talk to him. And so I was driving to the hospital to spend a few hours with him while my children were at school. We had a, you know, a lot of people who are in love, you know, they have a song and we had a song and, um, but it actually meant so much more. This is going to tell you how, how old we were, but it was the God must have spent a little more time on you. Um, and it's, it's an older song, but it's so beautiful. And now that Lance was in the coma, that song that we both loved before he was in the coma made us totally think it applied to us. You know, he's in this coma, he's coming back. God must have known you needed a little more time in heaven with him, you know, to teach you or whatever. So whenever that song came on, I literally all during his coma and afterward, and I, I would end up in tears because I just felt, okay, I had to believe that he was coming back. And I had to believe that God must have needed to spend a little more time on him. So um, as I'm driving to the hospital, that song came on the radio, God must have spent a little more time on you. And all of a sudden I felt, oh, I just felt that's his love. And that, and I'm not super spiritually perceptive I haven't ever seen an angel, but I've felt his angelic presence many, many, many times. And that was one of the first times I'd ever had that angelic presence. And, and for me, for the first time it happened, Lance said he was sitting by me in the passenger seat. It was just me alone in the car and the song on the, on the radio. And um, all of a sudden I felt his love. I didn't see anything. Or I thought, I wonder if he's with me now. I wonder. And, and then I went to the hospital, kept driving, loved the song, cried a little bit, 
I went and spent some hours with him while he was in his coma. Didn't think a lot of it. Then when he came back, he said, do you remember that time you were driving to the hospital? That song came on, you got a little teary-eyed. I said, yeah. So that's when I was with you. And that was probably one of the biggest gifts he gave our family. Because I've heard thousands of people say, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people about his experience since his death and his experience and how he, you know, visited with us while he was in his coma. Because we aren't a super spiritual, me and my kids, we're not those kind of people who see angels. I know some people have that gift, but he was able to come back and say, that's when I was with you. Remember what you felt. You felt love. You felt peace. You felt, you know, comfort. You felt that wonderful, good feeling. That's when I was with you. And that was the best gift because then after his death, we felt his, his presence with us so much more because we knew how to recognize it. Every one of our children that were old enough. So I, I've talked to so many people who've lost, you know, loved ones in there. They're like, oh, why, why does this other person see my deceased husband? But I can't. Wouldn't he want to come to me? My, my theory is after what we went through as a family, he's trying. Your spouse is trying to come to you. And sometimes I think it helped, at least for me, after my husband died. Sometimes you just have to ask God in prayer. Ask God to help you have that experience of feeling their love and again i don't think many people have the gift of being able to see angels i i sure don't uh, but i know how to feel because of what lance taught me after after um, his coma and so i know how to recognize him and it, it was such a blessing it's such a such a help after he died because i had six sons and one daughter they were all little my oldest when he died was 19. my baby was 20 months old and uh, my baby is now on a mission in chile right now um, but how was I supposed to raise six kids, <laughs> seven children with, you know, six of them were boys. I felt okay about maybe being able to raise a daughter, but I felt completely inadequate with all these boys. Uh, Lance taught them life lessons through sports. I was not a sport. <laughs> I, I did dance and I didn't know anything about sports or that mentality that you need to be a great athlete. And that was really important to them. And Lance used use sports to teach them so many things when he was alive and he still taught them things about sports after he died because they kind of learned to recognize him but actually it, it didn't matter that it was about sports it was it was the life lessons they needed to learn but he helped them he helped them in their sports um in ways that helped one of the things that uh that also stuck out in his story of his experiences was was that he met three friends that he had had yes before yes. his experience down here on earth before he was born so tell me about that and what was learned from that all right one was a man named rick who had been his friend in in life and we were good friends with he and his wife and he passed away in a snowmobile accident very young and it was really tragic I think he might have even been in his late 30s, early 40s. Um, that was the friend named Rick. The other two were people that, that you're right. He didn't, Ben and Samuel, they were people who um, weren't alive at the time that Lance was alive, but they were his friends. Uh, we believe in a pre-existence and that was verified for him. Again, you can argue all day about which religion has the most truth, but that was just one aspect of our belief that was verified. And again, that maybe many religions believe in that. And I'm not 
at all here to discuss religion, but um, the friends that came, abandoned Samuel, were friends that he knew before before he was born as an infant in, in this world. And that was really, really neat. And they each one had, one was alive at about the time of the founding of, of America, about 200 years before Lance was alive. And the other one was someone he knew that, you know, was 2000 years previous. And he just, he was just able to, to say, oh my goodness. And they were immediately, as soon as he saw him, he immediately remembered them. It was like, old times it wasn't like they were some strange you know person wearing really old-fashioned clothes from a colonial time um i think he said that most of them were dressed in white so everyone was kind of the same which was kind of neat one of the biggest questions i think we all have when we're facing death i mean nobody's perfect no one i don't care who you are nobody's perfect and we know we probably know people who have died who we think they're certainly not going to heaven or maybe they're going to hell or whatever. You know what I mean? But one thing that Lance learned over there was really, really beautiful. Um, so he learned that after we go right after we follow the light, we go into the next realm where there's no presence of evil of any kind, where you just feel that love of God. That's before we are resurrected. Those people there with the hugs they gave, that was spirit to spirit. He thought it was interesting because he said, you could feel their body as you hug them, even though it was he was told that they don't have their physical body yet. He was told that the resurrection doesn't come till later. But we still have, the thing he learned was we still have opportunities to change and improve before we're finally judged and resurrected, which was fabulous. So I, I, I don't think this is taught much in any religion at all. And the reason is obvious. Nobody wants us to think we can just, you know, be evil our whole lives and do whatever we want. And then we'll have time to change and progress and, and repent after we die. But actually Lance saw that in the next life where there's no presence of evil, people were allowed to, to change and become better. This was the most beautiful story I've ever heard. So there was a, a woman that he saw and she was welcoming little, her job was to welcome, she was a spirit in, in the next realm. Her job was to welcome the little children as they came through after their deaths. And, and Lance saw that whether you're 90 years old or whether you're one day old, everyone progresses and didn't know how long it took. Everyone progresses to an adult prime eventually. I don't know. He didn't know how long it took, but, but when he came first through into that realm, you were either a baby or a 90 year old or whatever age you were you were that age and you progressed to the prime age of all adults. But she saw this woman whose job was to welcome those little spirits who had been hurt by child abuse of all kinds. Mm. And, and his, I don't remember if it was his grandfather or his cousin, Randy, who was with him at the time. And they observed her just, her job was just to love and help these poor little children. And most of them had been through horrible things. And, um, and, and it was made known to him by these, um, you know, his deceased relatives who were his, who were his tour guides, basically, that she had been abused as a little girl herself. So she was able to understand their pain. But as she grew older and became a parent herself, she also, she didn't change. She was a, a, a child abuser herself. And it wasn't made known to him what the details were. And, and that's not important. But she had abused children, her own children, 
in similar ways to the way she had been abused. And as she was serving these little children as a spirit, an adult spirit, helping these little children who had just been, for whatever reason, through similar things that she'd been through, her job was to help them. And that was how she was working out her own redemption. That's how she was working. She was, as she served others, her own past, you know, grievances against other children were being alleviated and her, her sins, if you want to call it sins, her, her, her bad actions against children were being forgiven as she served them and helped others. I thought that was so beautiful. So I know I'm not going to be perfect when I die. Nobody is. And we're going to be given time in the, that next realm of spirit where there's no presence of evil, where we'll be able to improve, change, and grow. Before we have whatever you want to call it, the final judgment, the resurrection, there is time to change and grow because no one is perfect in this life. And there's every one of us needs something to fix. So that was just beautiful to me to think, okay, it's not like, oh my gosh, I didn't get this thing repented of before I let it ended up in that car accident. I still got time to change and improve and become the way God had made me to become. That's awesome. And you know, it sounds like she was like, God put her in a position where it's not like she was serving penance. It no. was more like, here's a situation where you can become better and you can get over those things that, yeah. you know, the, the problems that you had, this is how you can, in other words, fix yourself, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the it service makes sense was the thing that, that repaired her. The service she yeah. gave those children was the thing that healed and repaired her. And that God would put us in positions where we can do that. Yeah. And it's kind of like you said, you said that, you know, who else would want to come help us, but our deceased relatives who love us. She was also in a position who, who would want to help those children more than her, you know, because of what she'd been through. Um, so she was just perfect for that, for that, you know, that's a great point. He also talked about celebrations. Yeah. Um, but didn't go into very much detail. Did he ever tell you anything else about what they ate or anything like that? No, no, he didn't, but he did say that they ate, but they didn't need to eat. But it was, I guess that the the five senses and taste is one of them. Mm-hmm. It was something that they used for special occasions. Their spirits mm-hmm. didn't need food. Uh, he's his mom is like the best cook in the world, and food is a big part of his family, you know, situation. So he's like, I don't want it. I don't want the next life to be without food, you know. But they just used it for a beautiful. It was just part of a you know Christmas or or you know celebrating the Savior's birth or whatever like that. So I thought that was really cool to hear. There's one story that I really would love to, to share um, about how he helped us after his death. And again, most of you will laugh because I, I, mentioned, I mentioned sports, which in the, the, all, the all big picture of life probably isn't really that important. But it was important in our family with six sons. We have four sons that played football for BYU. Our fifth son is on a mission now, and he actually is a preferred walk-on for Kalani Sataki at BYU too. So when he comes back, he'll have that opportunity. However, um, one of our sons, when Lentz died, okay, he was 13, 13 when Lentz died. His name's Jared. And um, he's a wonderful man. He has three kids now. Beautiful, beautiful man with a beautiful family. But Jared was 13 when his dad died, and wrestling was another big sport for us. It was about five years after his death. He was in the state championship wrestling tournament. 
And um, we lived in Idaho Falls and his big nemesis was from Boise area. And he, they had wrestled throughout the season, probably three or four, maybe five times at the most. And each time this, this guy from Boise had, had always beaten Jared, but it was always very close by like one or two points. But Jared had never been able to suck up the mental and the physical stamina to actually be able to beat this guy. So at the state, they, it, we went through the tournament. Everyone thought that those two would be going for first place. And as predicted, they were. And so this is just an example of how much those who have passed on care. Because, you know, this is just sports. Do you think God would really care? But it was important to Jared. So it was important to his dad and important to God, I believe. So Anyway, really intense two or three day tournament. I think it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Each man from different ends of the state had one, 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 and now it's down to the championship uh, round, which was going to start in a couple hours. And Jared was intensely nervous and wanted to win that state championship more than anything. You know how you are when you're in high school, you think that's the most important thing in the world. And to him, then it was. So everyone was telling him how he had to wrestle. And his coaches, especially, were saying, listen, this guy, he's only beaten you by one or two points. And so the only way he was wrestling heavyweight, both of them were big. So stamina was an important issue in the heavyweight division. And he said, um, the only way you're going to beat this guy is to, to you, you know, you're a little more fit, maybe. So you're going to just have to take him all the way to the third round to the very end when he's getting a little tired, wrestle completely defensively. Don't, don't let him have anything. Just don't go for any crazy moves yourself. Just wrestle defensively. That's what the coaches had been preparing him the whole season, actually, to go for this guy, because he was the one that Jared was going for. So right before the match, he was, you know, all kinds of jitters. And he went up in the very top, top, top of the bleachers where no one was, no one was there. So he could be alone. And he prayed. And he asked God if he could just let his dad coach him a little bit. And he suddenly felt the presence of his dad, that warm, good, the love that only a really... Uh, loving dad. If any of you have a really loving dad, you, you know what I'm talking about. He felt his, the presence of his dad. And he, and he felt his dad saying, he didn't hear words, but he felt the thoughts come to his mind. Go against, go completely opposite of everything your coaches have been do, teaching you to do all year. Go exactly the opposite. Don't wrestle defensively. Be aggressive. Go out there and risk it all. And he felt this, the love from his dad and that beautiful, peaceful feeling of love that you feel from God and feel from a, a parent who just really, really is a good parent and loves you like crazy. He felt it and he knew that he should go out there and do exactly the opposite of what his coaches had told him to do. So after feeling that from his dad and being with him for a few minutes, he came back and sat down with the family on the sidelines, waiting for his turn. No, he didn't say anything to anyone, nothing to his coaches, nothing to any of us. And when the whistle blew, it was him and that boy from Boise. At first, all we could do is say, Jared, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be wrestling like this. His coaches were yelling. We were yelling. We're like, Jared, 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 come on. Did you go crazy? What's going wrong? You, you aren't supposed to be wrestling in this way at all. And it was beautiful. I actually have a video of it. I've shown it sometimes when I've spoken at occasions about the book. Um, he beat the guy, he pinned him. The guy who he was only expected to possibly, you know, be if he was, if he did play his cards right, very conservatively, 
by maybe one point if he was lucky. He ended up going out there, risking everything. Coaches screaming at him to stop that, that, you know, stop that mentality. And he pinned him. I think it was in the second round. So he didn't even go to the end. And it was beautiful. It was a work of art. <laughs> and have you ever in the movie, I think it was Braveheart. It said they fought like warrior poets, but he wrestled like a warrior poet. And it was amazing. And it was just, we've had a lot of experiences like that. A lot of times it's, it's a very difficult thing. I think I'm one of the few people who can say that I've had five sons play for BYU, play at the college level, D1 school, and their, uh, their pathways to getting, attaining those goals were filled with experiences with their dad who helped them through those things that really mattered to them. So I just want to leave, if nothing else, all those people who are grieving, sometimes all you have to do is ask God to send your your deceased relatives. And if you don't think you have the spiritual gifts to see them or hear them, I often I haven't often heard Lance or, or seen him at all, but I know what he's there. And I know that God wants us all to have those experiences as well because he loves us and our deceased relatives love us and they want to help. So that's my best takeaway from my husband's near-death experience. That is so touching that I think it's a great place to stop. That is such a good message, and I couldn't think of a better way to end it. So, Josette, thank you so much for being with us today. Really inspiring, good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor for me. Thank you so much. Sorry about the plugged-up nose, but I was happy to be here and share what I think um, all of us have the blessing to receive. I think we all can have that if we just ask and um, don't don't necessarily put a label on how we're going to, you know, I think when we ask to have angelic ministrations, we think, okay, I'm going to see an angel. Just ask to feel an angel, and I think that's a good place to start. If you've had a round-trip death experience and would like to share it with us, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to me, eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you've found this program uplifting, if it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, rate us five stars, and be sure to visit roundtripdeath.com. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Music